Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge engine failure, it appears, for Erica. The smoke funneling out of the back of the car. Stanfield drives by. It's a Summit Racing Equipment Nationals pre-race show this week with Todd Vanny and Tony Pedregon. And it's Trip Tatum for the first time in his career. 370 flat, 330 miles an hour. We'll take one last look back at the Thunder Valley Nationals and talk about how that could translate into success in Norwalk. Bobby Bodie's 074, and he blows the body off the car. Going through the finish line stripe, Bobby maintains control of the automobile. This is the NHRA Insider. Number 16 is going to take out number one. He left on a, by a day and a half. Both Manson Hines bikes are out, and it is crazy town at Pro Stock Motorcycle. Hey everybody, Brian Loans back again. Another episode of the NHRA Insider here. Thanks for joining us this week, which will be a pre-race show talking about the Summit Racing Equipment Nationals coming up in Norwalk, Ohio at Summit Racing Equipment Motorsports Park. One of the biggest um, and really most eventful races of the season in so many ways. Kind of a miniature version, not even that miniature, a 75% scale version of the U.S. Nationals because we have so many classes, so many categories. Uh, Pretty much anything you can dream up is going to be there competing just like it is at Indy. So, it is going to be great. Uh, Tony Pedregon and Todd Venny are going to join me today. We're going to talk one last time about what we saw in Bristol, uh, kind of talk about how that could translate to success in Norwalk and really set up what is going to be the back half of the regular season. We go to Norwalk, then we have a couple of weeks off, and then it's the Western Swing, Topeka, Brainerd, and the U.S. Nationals. So the next month, let's call it, Uh, becomes really, really critical for everybody in terms of jockeying for position, whether it's the points you're going to earn in a Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty challenge, simply getting to those challenges, uh, earning spots in them, and then, of course, race wins and more. We'll talk about those point standings when I get Todd and Tony on the line, but you know, there's a lot of stuff, moving parts, as they say, going on at this time of the year. Last week in the Camping World Series was off-duty, um, and I went down to Beach Bend Raceway Park in Bowling Green, Kentucky, for the NHRA Wally Parks Nostalgia Nationals, which is the first one of these Nostalgia Nationals they've had. They've had a Nostalgia race down there at Beach Bend for years and years, but you know, kind of freshened the format up, kind of changed the name, and uh, kind of changed the attitude a little bit. And it really was great. We had massive crowds all weekend long. Uh, I went to the, uh, the a series of radio stations on Friday morning um, before going to the racetrack. And, you know, we did some ticket giveaways and stuff like that. And it really was great. That is a community that embraces that racetrack to the point that their minor league baseball team in Bowling Green is named the Hot Rods. That's how much the car culture um, really kind of permeates that entire city. But it was great. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of show cars. The drag racing was fantastic. Um, Bobby Cottrell, Bucky Austin, and team did it again in the in the Nitro Funny Car category. Um, it was it was a great kind of it was a great race all around. Um, and the, the top fuel category was fantastic. We had great fuel alters. We had uh, exhibition cars, and of course, a whole class or a whole um, how should we say grouping of sportsman style index classes whether it was uh, straight axle gasser cars whether it was slingshots running in what they call uh, kind of a pro gas or pro comp format it really was great all around and it's a race that uh, really gave me a start many years ago it's steve gibbs hired me to do that race which uh, would ultimately lead to to um, bob fry seeing me and hearing me down there and getting me a tryout um, on the camping world series at epping uh, the very first year they had a national event and uh, look at me now so uh, it was neat to go back there completing that circle, and um, that is a, a race that has roared back to life in so many ways 
Don Garlitz was our grand marshal, so we got to hang out with Don Garlitz. We did some events together, um, some kind of fun Q&A on Friday night at, at Holly Performance uh, World Headquarters. And then he, of course, cackled uh, his Swamp Rat 12B, which is uh, one of his vintage cars that he has a Gen 3 late model style Hemi in that does a very fine job of throwing a whole lot of beautiful header flame out during the cackle fest. Uh, you know, that's one of the things about those events. It is as much a race and a car show as much as it is a celebration of history. And, you know, I had some great conversations with, with racers down there with um, some of the guys with the cackle cars and just anybody that, that I kind of ran into. And, you know, what's interesting is in, in nostalgia drag racing, there's there's a couple of different camps. And, and one of those camps is that, you know, the sport peaked um, during that era that gets celebrated at those events. And it certainly was a great time in the sports history, but I can't necessarily say it was the pinnacle. Um, obviously, our performance has moved on, the evolution of everything, but that that moment to freeze in time, um, whether it's the 1950s, the 60s, or the 70s, is a really fun kind of way to, to kind of just look at our evolution as a sport and, and as an enterprise, really. So, you know, I, I think some of the conversations made it turn into two debates to a degree because... You know, there's an interesting concept among a lot of older racers and older hot rodders that, that kids don't like cars and kids don't care about drag racing and, and this is all just going to evaporate one day. And so, you know, thankfully, I'm able to see a lot of different stuff in this sport. And just a few weeks ago, I was in Indianapolis for the Cletus and Cars event. And, you know, that is literally the opposite crowd as as kind of elder statesmen as the nostalgia drag racing crowd is. The Cletus and Cars crowd is is that generation of people that a lot of the guys at Bowling Green think don't care about cars. Um, I didn't have the heart to tell them that a lot of them have, uh, you know, street cars that will outrun their dragsters, but it is how the sport evolves. And, and the idea of, to me, the the idea of trying to sell a young guy on on loving a, you know, a 69 Camaro is is folly. You know, you don't need to, not everything, not everybody needs to love this, this one thing. And so the fact that, that a lot of the young guys are doing things their own way, doing things differently, using different engines, using different bodies and all that other stuff um, doesn't mean they're doing it wrong. It means they're doing it the way that their generation wants to do it. And so that was kind of my my um, uh, evangelical message to a lot of these older guys who were like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen to this stuff in X amount of years. And, you know, to me, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch more in the nostalgia drag racing side than anything. Clearly, there's still a lot of people that love it place was jammed it's not going away anytime soon there's always going to be a need to celebrate our history and there's always going to be a need and a want to have these vintage style cars out there um there are a few things cooler than a front engine top fuel dragster i mean it is they are hairy to watch they are hairy to drive they put on a great show and they are you know physics defying machines they have these little tiny rear tires on them uh they never move straight they're always sliding all over the racetrack you got guys like jim murphy out there that are just masters uh adam sorokin and others that are just so good and so much fun to watch and they're a handful and so there's always going to be that element and who's never going to want to watch a fuel altered i mean come on we had six amazing fuel alters at Bowling Green running a kind of a Chicago style eliminator quick two to the final type deal. And um, those put on a great show. So, you know, there are elements of this that are never going to get stale or old. Uh, it is just to me, it's going to look a little different over time. I mean, at, at what point do we start to look at cars from the 80s as being nostalgic cars? Because let's be honest, um, what an 80 an 83 Camaro is now 40 years old. Why would that not be allowed in a nostalgia race? And 
I think I know the reason. It's not nostalgic to the guys that are 75 and 80 years old. That's pretty much a new car to those guys. But for somebody like me, uh, you know, that's a car that uh, that is as old as I am. And it's a car that, uh, to me, should should start to kind of fall into that realm. So there's always going to be a sliding scale down there in that nostalgia world, at least in my opinion, for it to continue to maintain a level of freshness. Uh, you need to move that bar ahead so you continue to capture an audience that loves that, that, that feel of being able to look back in time. And all you're doing is extending the amount of time you can look back. You're not, you're not cheapening the thing by, by kind of advancing what we consider, quote unquote, nostalgic or nostalgia. Um, I don't think you, you know, you're not going to mix rear and front engine top fuel cars. That's what happened in 71 and 72. And uh, we certainly know how that worked out for the, uh, for the rear, or rather for the front engine cars. It was, um, it was the end of an era when Don Garlitz perfected that design and, and did the right thing. So um, it was a great weekend in Bowling Green. Um, I think it's going to be a really fun thing to watch that series kind of continue to reinvent itself. Uh, Don Garlitz was a fantastic guy to have around and um, overall it was a a really fun departure from the norm and also reinforced my feelings on uh, just how cool nostalgia drag racing is. So that's my soliloquy on Bowling Green. When we come back, I'm going to welcome Tony Pedragon. I'm going to welcome Todd Venny and welcome discussion on not only Bristol, but what we're going to look at this weekend in Norwalk as one year Tim Wilkerson dubbed it the 24 hours of Norwalk because it does tend to run a little long. We're going to talk a little bit about that when we come back. Stay with us here in the NHRA Insider Podcast. And we are back here in the NHRA Insider Podcast. I have welcomed my two guests. I got Todd Venny and I have Tony Pedragon. Tony, how are you doing today, man? Good. Good morning. Recovered from Bristol and ready for the next one. How about you, Todd? How are you feeling, man? I, I'm doing great, Brian. Glad to be here. So these two guys, uh, you guys kind of live uh, not too far away from Norwalk. So I'm guessing your commute uh, is going to be via wheels instead of wings, right, Tony? Definitely a drive. I drove to Bristol. That is seven hours. It's every <laughs> bit of seven hours. And, and after the race, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to prove anything to myself, but I had the option of getting a hotel or even pulling over. But I, I made the. I made it in a straight shot. I got tired. I wavered in between just for about an hour. And after that, I put on a little bit of Boston. Uh, the opposite of what you hear on a Sunday morning is, is what I listened to. And I made it just fine. Todd, what about you, man? You cruising over to Ohio or what? You're, you're all basically an Ohio native. I mean, I know, I know California runs deep in the blood, but Wadsworth, Ohio is like, is your ancestral homeland. It is. It's a- it's about 50 miles from Norwalk, and it's it's bizarre that everybody, when you leave Norwalk, if you're staying there, you go you go north or you go west. But for me, when I was racing there, I would stay at my mom and dad's house, and you would turn out of the track, and you would turn east, and you take these two-lane roads, and there is, if you go the right way, there is one stoplight the entire way. <laughs> That's good stuff. is the biggest town. There's nothing bigger between, except this town called Medina, which is about the same size, but it's it's just these little zigzag north. You just go, you know, east and south, and you can take any road, and it's just, it's 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 a great drive. And the one from Indy is the same thing. You blow out of here up 69 to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and like the last 
120 some miles if you do it right is just beautiful two-lane roads through nice. these tiny little towns it's great yeah that's cool you know uh you know bristol's a, a great racetrack it was an incredible race there really of course two races and then three if we count the mission uh too fast too tasty challenge so you know tony when we look at a, a normal uh, kind of Norwalk weekend, we look at it as kind of a grinder, right? We have a lot of classes. The days tend to be long. But in the context of 2023, this is like going to be a normal race. After coming off that incredible weekend in Bristol, this is kind of like a little bit more relaxed almost. Yeah, well, I think to some degree, but I, I think that it comes at a time where things really start to to ramp up in terms of, you know, points. I yeah. think early in the year, there's no point in talking about who who's on top in the points, yeah. so who's not in the top 10 or top 11 or top 12. Uh, now I think it becomes more relevant. I think some of the teams that haven't really hit their marks, it's really time to, you know, to button things up and, you know, lose the mistakes. And I think that's what a lot of teams are doing right now. And the, and the ones that are running good, I think they're just trying to refine, you know, what they're doing, how they've been doing it, uh, try to reduce and minimize the tire smoke, the loss of traction. And, you know, I think, I think on top of that, it's a network show. So it airs on Fox. It's not an FS1. So I think it's a big race. It's four qualifying sessions, which is what the crew chiefs for the, for the most part want, uh, cost the teams a little bit more, but you know, the, the purse increases a little bit, but the, for the tuners, they, you know, they really try to take advantage of having those four qualifying sessions. Yeah, it does. It does change the dynamic. It's certainly I, you know, as a selfish fan the four qualifying session thing is something that we just lived with for so many years and it was just normal. And then, of course, 2020 happens and we're running races with two sessions. And then, you know, we have a lot of races with three, but the majority of the races left this season will be four sessions, which I think is a good thing. And, you know, Todd, I want to really kick off this Bristol kind of Bristol leading into Norwalk discussion with Pro Stock Motorcycle, because we all knew the day was going to come where Gage Herrera would lose a round. I'm not sure any of us had it penciled in that it would be a red light against Steve Johnson, though. No, but even that guy's not perfect. You know, Gage, it's been incredible what he's accomplished. And then in the too fast, too tasty deal, the poor guy, Arana, actually even outruns him, but Gage has a 009 light. (laughs) So, you know, if you can have a 009 light, you could have a a negative 009 light just as easily. And it finally... It finally caught him there. But if you look, Steve Johnson really has gone unnoticed. Well, probably that's never been said before that Steve Johnson's unnoticed. But he, <laughs> he sort of he sort of did. If you look at the points, I think he's just a few points out of second place. Yeah. He was about the gauge, seemed like he had half a tenth on the field every round, but Johnson was the was the next guy right behind him, and then he had a huge matchup with with uh, Gladstone and Gladstone, it seemed like they didn't get their act together until one round too late. Yep. And so Johnson, you know, he, he deserved, I mean, Gage deserved to win because they had everybody covered, but nobody's perfect. And, and Steve Johnson is just kind of hanging in there. And, you know, for a guy like him, who's been around forever, I, I was glad to see him get a win. Right. I mean, he's just, he's worked hard for a long time and it was nice to see that if someone was going to get it, it was nice to see him get get a win in there. Yeah, and listen, Todd. I don't know if you, I don't know if Steve would agree, but I think I think Steve Johnson is at his best when he is that kind of 
uh, discounted property in that he's running well. He's not getting a lot of attention. I, I think in, in years past when we've seen him actually kind of make a run for a championship when that spotlight was really hot on him, that that was not the best time in his life or in his career. So I think there is a degree of, of, of I'm not to say comfort, but I think he runs better when he has a fast bike and we don't pay enough attention to him is what I'm trying to say. That's a, that's a good point. I never really thought of it that way. I think – He's, he had been around for so many years, and he was just kind of in there, win a race every couple yeah. of years. And then there was a point last year where all of a sudden, you know, now he's got just about the best bike out there. Yeah. And that puts pressure on a, that puts pressure on a driver. But when he blew up that motor, it seemed as if he sort of regressed to the mean, and it was almost like, all right, he's back to just Steve Johnson contender in there but not one of the first guys you think about and now maybe he's kind of with that new body maybe he's kind of slipped back up towards the top again yeah it kind of feels that way and you know tony is how much of a how much of a tell will will this summit racing equipment nationals be for gage herrera now that the you know now that the magic spell is broken now that we know that uh he you know he can be beaten even if it's beating himself how much of this this next race is a tell on on what we should expect out of him for the rest of the year well i i think everyone should have every expectation that he just goes right back to what he was doing before the red light but the but the mistake comes in the form of a red light. I mean, if you go back to the in the history of history, and you can you can see the pattern. And if if anyone were to tell Gage, Gage, this is how it's going to happen, it's still going to happen. And it, it is yeah. it is something that a driver or rider has to learn, regardless of how you tell them, because they have to find that boundary within themselves. So, you know, whether it was in the second round or the final round. Um, I think for Gage, he's just got to figure out how to discipline himself and how to find that balance of, you know, not being too quick. It wasn't blatant. No. You know, it's just something that, you know, every time, and this is the competitiveness of of the good drivers, the good riders. There's some that I don't know if they worry about it or not, but I've noticed that the good ones are constantly just pushing and pushing and pushing, and they strategize a little bit. They know in the first or second round, they don't have to push much, but but for Gage, I mean, he hasn't he hasn't been threatened yet. So so this was just something that you know was going to happen. Uh, pretty sure he a writer like Gage, it's very easy to fix. So um, I think the next time around, he's he's going to be a, a little bit more you know systematic or methodical or however he approaches it. He's going to know it's like your your dad when you're young. Don't touch that; it's hot. <laughs> And, you know, like my dad used to cut things with a torch in the shop and he'd say, don't touch it, don't pick it up. And the first time I walked over and picked it up and I dropped it as fast as I as I picked it up, he looked at me with a smirk and he said, what's the matter? Is it heavy? So <laughs> it's, it's, it's just something that you're waiting to happen. But next, but the next time he tries it, he's, he's going to yeah. know, hey, that is yeah. that is not a good thing. I don't have to do it until someone puts me in a position that I have to press and and I don't know I don't 
I don't see that any anytime soon, at least based on their performance. Yeah, and to me, it actually adds another layer to the story. I mean, it's it, the the undefeated thing was was one thing, but now we get to now we get to really kind of see how he digs in and and what happens. Not that it was some sort of a catastrophe to lose a final, but in the scope of things, when you haven't lost anything, when the first time it happens, we now kind of get to see that uh, that rebound. Speaking of rebounds, I'm going to stay with you, Tony. Obviously, Eric Anders gets a win in Bristol, um, a big deal. The one thing I'll say is this. When I go back and look at it, this was very much an Erica win. The car was okay, but she two out of the three round wins she had were hole shots. Um, you know, second round, she hole shots Koretsky out. Final round, she hole shots to a win. Semi, she didn't have an opponent. The first round, she raced, you know, the number 16 qualifier. So I, I would put this victory right on her shoulders, but I wouldn't necessarily say that this feels like a launch pad back into glory for this team at the moment. No, for starters, it was no surprise. I mean, I, I know that you know, we kind of, we build, we have a tendency to talk about things. We have a tendency to ask Steve Torrance, when's he going to win when, you know, when he went on his run and he was still getting the semifinal and final round. So, you know, it's just the nature of, of the expectations that people have that we have. So, and I know that Erica said, you know, that, that everybody counted him. I think that is a driver that, that builds that drama within themselves yeah. to, you know, to push themselves. So uh, nobody ever wrote her off. Um, not that I saw. Um, we just, you know, she went from one extreme to the other. And it was mostly based on the car's performance. And, of course, she wasn't that good. There was a couple of opportunities for her to win. And she didn't. She's, you know, she liked, she's like anyone else. She can get beat on a whole shot. She has. But she had a good race. Kyle, you mentioned in the second round, he had the car to beat her. Yeah. And, and that's really where most of these guys just come up short. So you have to give her credit for being able to deal with the pressure and, you know, going, you know, what, eight, seven, eight races without winning, without winning and, and pulling it off. And, you know, that's, that's how the driver contributes, you know, to, to the team. Sometimes it's the driver, sometimes it's the car. She had a solid enough car. And she did what she has done so many times is she smokes them on the starting line. And Todd, you know, what's your kind of impression coming out of that? Because to me, obviously, it was a it was a great moment for her and her team, a moment of uh, certainly of relief and everything else. But again, I, I just I look at it's not necessarily a win that I think, OK, here they're going to they're going to make a charge up the up the ranks. Like I still I still maybe look at a Dallas Glenn uh, or even an Aaron Stanfield, maybe in a slightly different performance category right now than Erica's car. Well, I, you know, what's interesting, I think she won, I think she only won a couple rounds all year in seven races. So, yeah. so she basically won twice as many rounds in one day as she had all year. What was interesting to me is that the first thing out of her mouth is, uh, this is for all the people who doubted me. Well, who's doubting her? You know, I, I didn't doubt her. Why, why would anyone doubt her? I, I think maybe she's reached a point in her career where, um, like with a lot of, pop competitors they have to be mentally strong you know like a yeah. like a guy you're 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 at the free throw line and you're down two you need to make them both you miss that first one now you're really screwed now you know and, yeah. and she's the kind who, who would make them both so i think it must just be something she's won so many times and for so long that i think that kind of gave away her own mindset that must be what she uses to psych herself up this is for all the people who doubted me I, I can't imagine anyone really doubting her. Bruno said that to me. Bruno hit me on talkback. She's not even out of her car, and he's like, 
who the hell's doubting her? Like, well, that's what I thought too, Bruno. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, the, and the, I think a lot of us kind of had that feeling. But I think the other thing is you look at, you know, professional athletes, as you mentioned, Todd, and, and everybody finds their motivation in different places. And, and I feel like that is obviously what, what she was looking at, what she was feeling. And whether it's true or not, it only matters if it's true to her. In, in this scenario, right? If she, if she believes that it's true, then she can use it to motivate herself and, and have a good performance like she did Sunday, then then it works. Whether the rest of us want to believe it or not is, is a different thing. But um, yeah, I think it's an interesting motivational tactic. And, you know, I have to believe that there are other people, you know, you can't tell me that a Derek Kramer wasn't feeling the same thing when he won. Now, he didn't say it, but you can't tell me that Derek Kramer in the back of his mind somewhere wasn't like nobody thought we'd ever win one of these freaking things again. Yeah, I agree. I also I also thought what was what was really kind of intriguing about the event was there in the first round, the first several pair, that was pretty hairy, right? The conditions yes. they stopped the race and they redid it. But you had you had drivers get about as close to crashing as you can. That was the most I ever was impressed with Camry Caruso that she took her foot out of the gas when she was slightly ahead because she probably would have wadded that thing up if she didn't. You know, Greg Anderson has made more laps than anyone in pro stock, uh, of the current drivers anyway. Uh, he had a white knuckle ride, and then, you know, he took it right to the edge, and then Dallas Glenn. Oh, boy. Yeah, that was the hairiest one of all. Over the edge. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was scary to watch. He almost took it too far, but he didn't. So that's that's more uh, just, that's just great driving. That's people who can really control their cars, not just – Pro stock, I think so much of the time it's the cars are so close. People, you know, there's a shift light that comes on. People really don't miss that too much. It's who gets their left foot off the clutch, right? Yeah. And this was a race, at least for several pairs in a row, where real driving and real car control came into play. And that was great to see in pro stock. No, absolutely. And, you know, Tony uh, put a little, uh, you know, punctuation mark on on this one. You know, Greg Anderson was looking pretty sporty um, outside of, as as uh, Todd said, about, you know, some of the wild sideways runs we saw. But he was looking pretty sporty until, you know, they had the mechanical problem to shut the car off. And obviously, this is a summit race, and he's been involved with summit for 20-some years. Is this the is this finally going to be the weekend where Greg is able to, to bust off 102? Well, that's... You know, it, it depends on Greg. Greg has the car, um, you know, and, and hey, Greg, I, I respect the guy. I think that the the pro stock class as a whole, they respect him very much. He's earned his stripes. But, you know, let's let's not uh, let's disperse with the 400-pound uh, elephant in the room, like Tony Soprano would say. There is, there is a, a discrepancy, or I should say a deficiency on the starting line. You know, Todd just... Todd just said it. You know, what it comes down to is the driver's ability to focus and get off of the starting line, you know, and, and I hate to, you know, I hate to beat that too much, but, but that is pretty much what it comes down to. And, and we see that in top fuel and in funny car, but that's always been the story in pro stock. You know, there's really no team like Erica that had a performance advantage of, of two to three hundredths of a second, you yeah. know, so, so they enjoyed, they had the luxury, but Greg has had a car a lot of times and, Hey, if Greg, if Greg can, it, it seems like he's, if, if you go four rounds, he's, he's really good yeah. two of the rounds, yeah. but the other two, you can get, you can easily get caught, especially, you know, it's not even by the time you get to the second round, the competition ramps up. We see a lot of good uh, pairings and matchups in the first round. And, 
you know, that, that, that good driver, or rather good driver with a good car, did not see the light of day after the second round. So that's that's really what it's going to come down to. You know, I think he was going to lose the race with Dallas. Dallas had to get out of it, got a little squirrelier yeah. than Greg did. Um, you know, that's I think that's what it's going to come down to. Seems like he has the car. And the funny thing I see about Erica is, you know, Brian, you and I, we just can't help but notice these patterns, but her car is running better and now Troy Collison Jr.'s car is not running so good. So I'm not yeah. going to I'm not going to throw out this uh conspiracy theory that they change the wraps on cars but if, if there's a couple of parts that they're swapping out with these cars if i'm troy jr i want that part back i want them back yeah i definitely want them back you know we talk about <laughs> swapping stuff um in nitro funny car we swapped winners uh at bristol bob tasker the third won the new england nationals that were contested on friday and saturday and then ron caps who had lost in the first round of that race comes back and wins the bristol thunder valley nationals on sunday and you know todd last week i had uh, dean antonelli as one of the guests on the show and i asked him i said it was losing in the first round almost a blessing in disguise for Sunday uh, and he said it was because they were able to just detach themselves from this idea of having to race and then really concentrate on a good um, on a good approach that they could then bring into the eliminator on Sunday and it, and it worked out for them so it was a truly strange weekend up and down um, for all these nitro teams but to me the the caps weekend was was very impressive well you could see on caps's face when he lost Oh, uh, yeah. Whole shot, Tasca. And maybe Tasca rolled it in there a little more than he did. I Ron referenced Bob not staging the way he always did. But, you know, Ron is a – he's truly been a great driver for going on 30 years and, you know, probably embarrassed him a little bit. I mean, he – you know, and and like a real champion, he, he brought his game up the next day. You know, when he got to the – when he gets to the final and he's running a Lexus – I mean, you can just see it coming. You know, it's like, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, you can just, it's like, boy, come on, Alexis, let's, let's get one of your good ones here. Cause you know, caps is going to be on time and he probably rolled it in there a, a little bit for a, for a 49 light, but you could see that coming all the way. And, uh, he, he put it on her and, and he needed that one, you know, now, you know, at least, at least when you, I mean, when do you, when do you get a championship? That weekend, the next day, yeah, that never, never happens, right? So he can just put that out of his mind, and he leaves Bristol a winner like he has so many times, and just has an incredible record at that track. Tony, is 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 Caps going to make it to 100 wins? I mean, he's over 70 now, so he's you know he's you can you can kind of start to to think about this. And I realize another 20 plus is another close to 30 is a lot, but is this guy going to make it to 100 wins in his career? He should. He should. If you go back in the history of Ron Caps. I mean, who's he driven for? He drove for Don Elm. You know, he's always been surrounded by the best talent, uh, you know, the, the, a good amount, a uh, substantial amount of depth. He's always really been in the uh, with the upper upper tier teams. So yeah. he's had everything that he could to win, and, and he still does. So there's no reason that he can't. Uh, you know, Ron has been in it for a long time, and he was good from the start. You know, Ron is just one of those drivers that makes a difference. And yes, he deep staged. Yes, he, he, he did exactly what he got upset that Tasket did to him in the first round. Ron is just selective when he wants to do it, you know, and, yeah. and you could argue and say, well, it's okay to do in the final because you're not going for lane choice, but you wanted to win. So that's why you did it. So I'm always going to, I'm 
always going to call somebody out when they bring up that deep staging conversation because I'll maintain that, A, it's not easy to do. The drivers that are good at it, they still execute when they roll the car in. There's a lot of things that play into deep staging properly. And I've seen a lot of drivers that have tried to do it and they forget to leave. They still get beat. And it's all relative. It's just yeah. a number. So I know Ron was pretty upset because he got beat in the first round. And I, I agree with you. I think that is the reason that they uh, they came to life. I think there was two parts of that. I think the driver told himself, I'm not going to make that. I, I'm not saying that he laid up, but right. he was right. he was going for the qualifying number. And, and it's not qualified. I mean, it is. Yeah. But what's more important? I think that's really the decision that the driver has sure. to make. So he just got clipped. It happens. But, you know, one thing about Ron is – He's good. He's always going to be good. He's always been good. He's always very reliable. And, you know, it's funny. We talked about the big three last year, and we even talked about the big three this year. And guess who's sitting at the top of the points? It's Height. It's Hagen. It's Ron Caps. And anyone else that wants to come to the party, it's uh, the clock's ticking. It is ticking, but, but Todd, it's also ticking with this guy named Chad Green. You know, I mean, the, the, I think all of us thought, okay, three, four races in, this is a fun story, but eventually down he goes, and now we're this deep into this thing, and he's sitting fourth in the points, and it's a solid fourth. It's not like it's some uh, magical mystery tour fourth he's on. That thing just goes out and goes down the racetrack, and to me, if Chad Green proves anything for this year, it's that one, stage it however you want. As long as the car is going to get to the finish line the majority of times, you're going to fare pretty damn well. Yeah, you know, Chad Green, it's incredible, the, the semifinals that he's gotten to. But for me, um, you know, it, 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 to me, it almost gives people who always wanted to maybe race a Nitro funny car, it gives them hope. Yeah. Because it, it can be done, right? He is not, he is, he is a step back from the three who've ruled the class for the last five years. But he's even ahead of his own teammates. He's been a uh, right. Tim has won a race, but but you know, and he's done the job. Whether you roll it in a little bit or not, whether you have to stage first every time or not, I have said before. I think that might come back and bite him one time or something. But he's proven himself with really tremendous reaction times over the entire year, and and getting it down the racetrack. Those things are hard to drive. I can't even imagine what it is like to keep a nitro funny car in the groove, run after run after run. And at some point, Dan Wilkerson needs to get a little credit here. I mean, that oh, car goes yeah. down track consistently and they've just become a fixture in the semifinals. And to me, it gives hope to other people out there that, you know, it can be done. You could do this too. You know, Tony, to Todd's point, I, I one of the... Uh, Dan Wilkerson obviously needs the credit as well for what he's doing, like Todd said. But also, one of the things I think is great about this story with Chad Green is when we watch him drive the race car, there are people that have been doing this longer than Chad that do not drive the car as capably as Chad has been driving it this year. I mean, again, we talked about it on the show, but but we saw this guy come in over from the Pro Mod side and run a handful of races, and it was kind of sketchy to start with, I think, as anybody looks at a Nitro Funny car. But I look at this guy now, and I'm not saying he's Superman. I'm not saying he's better than a Ron Caps or, or a Hyde or a Hagen. I'm not putting him in that league. But he is a very, very serviceable, consistent funny car driver now. 
But this may be more in, in the line uh, for a Chad Green. These funny cars have a lot more downforce than, than a pro mod car. You know, we talked about the race with Greg Anderson, Dallas Glenn. You know, you, you plug you plug a, a, a supercharger or a nitrous car in those same situations, yeah. and that's and we see it a lot, you yeah. know, and, and it's, it's just one of those things that you have to really, really know when to say when in a pro mod car. But the funny car, of course, I mean, it's got so much more downforce, but you, you can't deny what Chad Green has done. And it's, it's, this is, you know, this is a, a two, two part success story here. The, the fact that, you know, Dan Wilkerson has taken a very specific approach. I think he knows a, a, a range that he can race in. And I think for Chad, for, um, for Wilkerson, for the tuner, it's more about racing. And I, I think that, uh, you know, of course it's paid off, but, but what that's done is that's given Chad Green a car and a car that's going to be consistent. So, you know, he's done a real good job, you know, regardless of how he stages, that really is irrelevant uh, because, you know, if you roll the car in, you lose some performance. It makes the driver look better, but it's all, it's all relative. What he's done is he's taken a car with the assistance of Tim Wilkerson um, and, and, you know, made it good. So a lot of things have to happen. I mean, we, we see teams out there now that have been trying the same thing for longer and it just doesn't work. Right. So he's managed to, uh, so, so he has to, because it's his team, he takes most of the credit for creating a good culture. And if, if you spend a couple of minutes with Chad, you can sense yeah. that, that he's very stable. His feet are on the ground. He's a good person, but it, it seems like he's really, developed a good culture with that team and allowed the tuner to operate in the range that he's comfortable with and to race a car, to give him a car that'll just go down the track. He's lost a couple of races that, that they were just outperformed, but you don't see him going out and doing stupid things. And you know, when they smoke the tires, he doesn't get the car sideways. I mean, I'm sure he, he learned that discipline from where he came from in a pro mod car. So, um, overall that, that team has done a very good job. The question the question is this, when Tasca, and, and we've already thought, we saw Tasca win, uh, win impressively. The, the, I mean, he beat Chad Green in the semifinals, yes. if I'm not mistaken. So will Chad Green still be in the top five when Tasca and when Alexis and when JR and when the Snap-on car, when all of these cars, when we see them start to perform the way we expect them to, that is the question. And and I'm just, hey, prove me wrong. I would right. be the first one to say these guys pulled it off. But if we can have the same conversation at the end of the year, I think that's going to be a good story. No, I think you're I'm just, I'm just, you know, hey, I'm a skeptic. I'm yeah, not, yeah. I'm, I'm impressed at how well they have done to this point, but we're, we're we're just we're starting the grind here in funny car that's all no that's fact no and those are all valid points i i think the last thing i'd say was it appears from the outside looking in that this is a team as you mentioned the culture it seems like this is one of those ideal situations where the driver drives and the tuner the tuner tunes and they both trust each other to do those things independently and there's not a lot of snooping over the shoulder one way to the next um and apparently that seems to be at least in my estimation something that's working really really well um justin ashley just i mean todd this was 
you know, we've all seen a lot of stuff in drag racing over the years. We've all seen impressive victories. We've seen depressing losses. We've seen mistakes made. But I'll be honest with you, what Justin Ashley's team that weekend in Bristol is probably a top three, top four, top two performance for me all time, no matter what class, what category of just absolute awesomeness out of that car and driver. Yeah, I mean, obviously, he's not going away. This is who he is. He's you've got you've got Antron, you've got Langdon, you've got some of the top top people who haven't haven't really gone backwards. But he is the clear cut best lever since they've been keeping track of top fuel reaction times in 1981, and. It, I think his worst was like a 58. Yep. That's killer. Yeah, that's insane. That's killer. God. And it's just round after round. I made one little mistake, but it was right against Brittany Force when she smoked the tires too. So that's, so, I mean, I I wouldn't, he's not lucky at all. The guy just does a great job driving the car, but you know, you need, there, there is some component of luck. and, And so that happened just at the right time. But then, Mike Green, you know, I, I remember Mike Green. He worked for a guy named Bill Barney, who was a good alcohol dragster racer in the '80s. And uh, they were at my dad's shop when I was a kid. And Mike Green, he was like the nicest person. I would ask him question after question after question. I was probably fifteen or sixteen, and Mike was only in his probably twenties or something. And he was, and uh, I was talking to my pop about this a couple of days ago, and he's like, "Man, Mike has come a long way." There's a point where. You know, well, you took, you know, several years ago, you took over Alan Johnson's combination. So, how much of that is really yours? Well, years have gone by. Yeah. You know, it's, it's Mike Green's combination. And I'm sure Tommy DeLago, that's not hurting anything at all. Tommy has a lot of knowledge as a champion in his own right. But, but that car got quicker like every single run. And then in the final round, 336 miles an hour at Bristol. That's ridiculous. <laughs> It was. And, and Tony, how much of this win translates into intimidation and not outright, you know, we're going to beat you over the head with a crankshaft intimidation, but how much does this win stick with everybody else in that top fuel category with how consistent, impressive, not only the tune-up was, but also the driver over this three-day period? I'll tell you what they should be mostly worried about is the incentive. It's the motivation that this team has. They, they, Whatever happened at the end of last year, yeah. I'm pretty sure still plays on their mind. It's not going to happen again. Not not from the driver, especially the tuner. And, you know, I, I think for Mike Green, I mean, when you start doing better than your teacher, you've, you've done something, yeah. you know, and, and uh, hey, Alan is still quite the decorated uh, tuner and he'll continue to be. But I think those questions were answered when the army car, not just won those championships, but when Mike green just continued to, to perform. So, I mean, he's pretty locked in that car is consistent. It, it, uh, it's quick, you know, it, so they have everything. And Justin Ashley is what a driver should be. He's a complete driver. He can do an interview. You can tell that he does his homework and and I think I think that people more it's like everyone jumps on the bandwagon. If one person says something, everybody says it. What I like about Justin is we see the genuine article. Uh, there's a level of energy that we see sometimes, and you know sometimes there might be a lack of, but but that's okay. That's the guy's personality. So um, I think that I think the uh, 
I think the rest of the top fuel class is in a world of hurt because if they can run yeah. as good, then they have to be as consistent. And and if they can be as consistent, now you got to beat this guy on the starting line. And there's only a few. There are a few that can compete. But the one thing that Justin Ashley does is he's able to do it over and over and over again. So yeah. you can't count a couple of drivers that are good, but they might lay up. That's when you want to catch them. Uh, it just doesn't seem to happen with Justin, and I think that's that's a bad thing for everybody that's got to compete against him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do see we do see. Um, some drivers able to dial it up here and there, but this guy doesn't need to dial it up. This guy's just out there, you know, run in and run out. And so one of the things I thought that was really interesting, Todd, last week when Mike Green was on the show, he said it was the first time in two years they had blown up an engine. And when they did that, they had to obviously go into the mad thrash to get it all to get it all fixed. And it was a test that this team had not had to go through in a couple of seasons, and they did it flawlessly, which I think says a lot. They also backed the tune-up off uh, after that engine explosion. The car did slow down, but uh, as Mike Green knows, he's got Justin in the seat, so he gave back a little bit on the mechanical performance, and Justin carried the water on the on the you know human performance in the race car. So between the, the the crew chief being able to have confidence in the driver, and now this team kind of being put through the ringer and going through it, what is there to derail them for a championship? What is there to throw this team off the tracks? Well, I mean, the only thing that you know, the only thing I really see is that the points get reset at the end of the year. Yeah. So they're starting all over again. But for Justin Ashley, uh, it isn't like he has to raise his game. He's there. Yeah. You know, I mean, his his average light, I think, is in the 40s. It's it's incredible what he's done. So he doesn't have to psych himself up. And it, it seems like he's impervious the pressure nothing it's because it's just time after time after time you're in the final round man this is one run for a wally this is one you know and he's right there or not just a hair better but it just it's the same thing every time which i think is all any crew chief would want from their driver i don't have to you know he, he doesn't need to roll it if you ever watch him stage he'll be he'll be blinking that light <laughs> when he cuts these reaction times See, it's not he's not cheating he's not doing anything he's just he's just that quick Tony, one last point to make on this uh, subject. How impressed are you with the discipline this team showed in that winning on Saturday and then coming back with clear head to win on Sunday? Um, that certainly has to speak to the respect they have for the guys running that team, the respect they have for their operation. Uh, you know, just in the nature of business here, you win a race and it's kind of party time, but they managed to they managed to lock that down and come back and, and be as fresh as, as the morning dew on Sunday. But that's for me, Brian. It just goes to show you the the management and and the you know the way they run the team. Again, the culture yeah. of that team um, that's led by Mike Green. I mean, they they've been there. You know, they have already positioned themselves to get a second chance, and it's yeah. not often that you get another opportunity to run for a championship. But um, yeah, it just goes to show you the level of experience that uh, from the people that are there. And and if you don't expect that from Justin. Um, because you just don't know. He, he just he doesn't seem like the partying type. And, and the reason that I say that he is what a top fuel driver should be, he has a level of professionalism that doesn't it doesn't come off to me as a as a partier. His focus is not not to have a good time. I've yeah. never heard him say that. We're just out here to have fun. Yeah, I never. Um, I don't get choked by the, the the smoke from the grill when I go by their pit, and, and I just I don't see that. I see. A professional team 
I see a, a team that conducts themselves as professionals. And, you know, I, I, I think that that just goes to show you that if they can do it back to back on a weekend, they, they can, I just think that they've already proven they can keep this pace up. They're good when it warms up, they can manage the power and they can go pretty quick when it's cool. So to me, you've got everything that you need to win a championship. Now they just, they just need to position themselves if they're on top, which it does appear that they're going to be that number one seed. And even if they're not, I think uh, as long as they don't get beaten in early rounds like like they did last yeah. year, uh, I think they're going to be there and they're going to be in a good position going into that last race of the year. Yeah, it makes logical sense. And, you know, right now they're 64 points ahead of Torrance, and then you go 122 points ahead of the number three car. So, you know, there's only one guy that's even within a race of them right now as far as the uh, point standing goes, which we all know and have discussed will be reset after the U.S. Nationals. Uh, one last thing I want to hit on with both of you guys before we go is, you know, you look at the entry sheet for this weekend and, you know, it's one of those things that has to make you smile. We have great fields in all the categories. We got great part-timers like Tony Zizzo coming back this weekend. And, you know, Todd, when we when we kind of look at, at these race weekends and we have expectations, especially when we race in the middle of the country, that we're going to see a lot of race cars. And when I look at that top fuel sheet, even the funny car sheet, even the pro stock sheet, we're in this era where, as good as we're talking about Justin Ashley being, there's cars in there that can race with him if they put it together for one weekend. So let's talk a little bit about the fields and what we should probably be expecting for uh, performance this weekend. Well, you've got, uh, like, Spencer Massey, who didn't have his act together. His yeah. team didn't qualify, and then he throws down a, a 370. <laughs> I mean, he, he should have won the championship in 2011. He, you yeah. know, he's, he's made his name with his reaction times. And in Funny Car, not that they're going to win the race, but of all the cars, if you ever notice, all the cars that don't run all the races – that Mike McIntyre team yeah. from Ohio, they really, that's a solid, you know, it, he got to the final at uh, Charlotte, I believe. But they, those guys really, they do well for themselves. That's that's an impressive group. I, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful car, and I've totally been impressed by them. They could, they could make a little noise if things fell their way. Yeah, and to a degree, and, and with respect, uh, McIntyre's kind of a like a Chad Green, but he, he's just not quite as tight on the starting line. You know, we've watched that thing run a series of mid-390s in Charlotte. We watch it run 4-0s in Bristol. So, you know, Tony, we, we always like to kind of dote on that team on the, on the show because I think they're a great story. But, you know, is this going to be the type of weekend where a mid-390s car is going to be going rounds, or is this going to be the type of weekend where uh, it's going to be 380s and, and you better have your, your big boy pants on? You know, it's the weather, but I think that um, McIntyre has a, a good car. You know, they made an investment. Um, it was a little over a year ago that they went from the five disc. They had a, a combination that worked. They they had they had some success, and 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 they you know they they looked to the future. I just you know it's funny because I think that Tony Zizzo and Top Fuel and the McIntyres they they've pretty much done the same thing. Their yeah. their model is quality over quantity so they run less races yeah. they do it within their means and they go to the starting line with the best equipment so so zizzo as well they went from the five disc to ron tobler setup that worked very well and they put the six disc in they knew that that's that was the future the tracks are prepped better 
you got to get rid of some of the heat so you can better control the clutch. So the sixth disc is just the, it's the better clutch. And, um, you know, McIntyre, that, that car just goes down the track. So when you talk about Chad Green, you can, you can include Zizzo and, and even, uh, Kyle Wurzel. There's yeah. some other teams that, you know, I always go back to, you know, Don Schumacher. I, I see him on the starting line occasionally, but, you know, thank goodness for guys like Don Schumacher that, cared enough about the future of this sport that he reached out and he would tell he would tell his crew chiefs that work for him go help these guys yeah go help i mean like help them so he could sell them parts i'm sure there was a business aspect of it but he didn't have to do that and the torrances have done the same thing you know they have helped other racers that when they roll their cars out they're just more competitive than what what we saw you know, 10, 15 years ago. Some of those cars would, and teams would just struggle. So I think some of the teams have gotten smarter. And and I think, you know, thanks to Don and the Torrances, and I'm sure there are others that have just kind of reached out because they have the, the, the what's best in the best interest yeah. of the sport, not just, you know, what's, what's in their best interest. And I think that's very unselfish, and I'll give those guys a lot of credit for that. Well, guys, I look forward to seeing both of you uh, this weekend. We got a huge field. 21 Pro Mods were full and overflowing in Pro Stock, Pro Stock Motorcycle, Funny Car, and Top Fuel. It uh, It is uh, maybe looking a little dicey with Mother Nature, but when has it not looked a little dicey with Mother Nature this year? It's been kind of the theme of the whole thing. It's going to be good, and it's going to be fast. And uh, Tony and Todd, as always, thanks for taking some time. Brian, what are are we going to find you in the ice cream line at the NOAA? Listen, the, the ice cream line has been revised. Of course, it still exists, but it is now $3, and there is no kids scooping anymore. It is a, a prepackaged program, which for a, a germaphobe like Todd Venny is probably a great uh, is probably a great development. <laughs> hey, if I can collect my 300 from Reef, I'll uh, kick you three of that. <laughs> if, if, you can get me, uh, if you can get me some of that ice cream. Look forward to it. We'll see you guys there. See you there, Todd. Thanks again. All right. Bye, guys. Stick around for one minute. We'll be right back with my final thoughts in this episode of the NHRA Insider. All right, welcome back to the end of the NHRA Insider podcast and this pre-Norwalk edition, pre-Summit Racing Equipment uh, Nationals that will be happening at Summit Racing Equipment Motorsports Park this weekend. Our NHRA on Fox coverage is wall-to-wall, as it always is, starting Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 5.30 to 7.30 on FS1. We'll have qualifying, early qualifying coverage. Our qualifying wrap-up show will be 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Saturday evening. And that is going to be, uh, once again, on FS1. But then on Sunday, we have a bit of an alteration from what we've been doing. And that is a good thing, as we are going to be on the big network, baby, 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern on Fox for all of the coverage of the Summit Racing Equipment Nationals. Your local Fox affiliate, not FS1 on Sunday. Friday, Saturday, come find us on FS1. Sunday, we're going to be on your local Fox affiliate, and it is always great when we get to uh, get on our network run of summer shows. We get here going in Norwalk and then the Western Swing through the U.S. Nationals, and of course, we have our NFL-adjacent game coming up during the countdown as well. Lots of stuff going on. As Tony mentioned, this really is a critical part of the year. We, we mature this season. We've gone from the early kind of hope springs eternal for everyone. Now we see some teams faltering and some teams starting to get their legs underneath them. 
to start to really dig in to make the back half of the regular season as strong as they can make it in order to position themselves the best in the countdown. It all begins this weekend in Norwalk, Ohio. Watch us 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Eastern on FS1, but more importantly, come see us. Get out to Summit Racing Equipment Motorsports Park. It is America's racetrack. The Bader family continues to operate it and do so at an incredibly high level. If you've never been to Norwalk, it is one of the finest drag strips in the nation. Make sure you put it on your list. If not this year, make sure you put it on your list for next year. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks again to Tony Pedregon and Todd Benny for taking some time out of their day to talk all things NHRA drag racing. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be able to see you and tune in this weekend. Watch us on FS1 and the Fox Broadcast Network on Sunday. We'll see you next week with a Norwalk wrap-up show.